Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. On this episode, we're coming back to Dublin. We've got Paul Farrell, the MD of Virgin Media Television. Paul, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Reem. Delighted to be here. Delighted to have you. Typical fashion with this podcast is we go right back to chapter one and work away from there. So, no different. You grew up in Dublin. If I'm correct, you went to St. Joseph's CBS Secondary School. Any favorite memories or standout fond memories from your childhood? That's a good, yeah, I went to Joey's in Fairview, which it's, it's funny, so it wasn't uh, very close to, to home. I grew up in Artain. It was a bit of a trudge to get there every day, but it was, it was viewed in my, my, my parents' eyes as a great school and all that kind of good stuff, so I uh, went there. Um, it was interesting. I think what I, what, what, over the years, what I remember more was the kind of bad experiences than the good experiences, and then as you get older, you focus more on the, the good experiences, and what I mean by that is, the value of a good teacher is uh, immense uh, and you probably don't appreciate it at the time. So I had a great chemistry teacher and I had a really good uh, Spanish teacher uh, and I had a couple of more dodgy teachers in other areas. And they were the subjects I focused on and got the most out of. And actually, coincidentally, I, I originally chose to do science in college uh, as a result of kind of just that passion I grew for chemistry through having a really good teacher. And I think, so school, that was one side of it. The second side, it was a big sporting school. It gave me a big interest in, in sports. It was very competitive. If you're any good at sport, you got off lots of classes and you got treated a little bit better than the other guys. So that was interesting. And uh, and made some great pals. The same thing, I think, if you think about what everyone's gone through now, I think those formative years in secondary school are some of the best years mm-hmm. uh, you'll go through in terms of developing and growing and figuring yourself out before you move on to college, which is obviously a much more kind of adult experience. So I enjoyed school for the most part, had some kind of really good pals, good teachers took out my mind after the fact. At the time, I was probably, uh, put it this way, my school reports wouldn't have been very good. And my mum used to come home quite angry after parent-teacher meetings because there was always some sort of drama. So kind of school was uh, part of the journey, but it wouldn't be something I'd say I, I, I really enjoyed. Uh, I did okay. I got through exams and got good results, but it wasn't a very enjoyable phase of my, uh, my development. Well, the school that you went to, it was the same school that Brendan Gleeson and Charles Hawley went to, but now they've also had the graduate of the MD of Virgin Media Television. So you, they, <laughs> uh, they've produced some great talent. Sticking with your childhood days, who do you think inspired you the most or who do you think had the biggest impact on you when you were growing up? Oh, that's a, it's a funny question. One of the other things that affected me, large when I grew up I was I was in the RTM boys band for seven years so that was something my my father was very keen for me to join so in in those days uh, you used to join I joined when I was about nine years of age and um, basically you used to go every day from uh, half four to half seven uh, after school uh, 12 months a year yeah so uh, the, the, the interesting thing for me was I hated it again I wasn't any good so I played the trumpet for seven years stuck it out went there every day got to a level where I would have been in Crow Park at weekends and all that type of stuff but it wasn't enjoyable I wasn't good at it it was what my dad wanted me to do and in in his he was of an era of very strong work ethic and you never give up anything and you stick at it and so 
he had a very big influence on me in that respect. Uh, and then equally, my mum had an influence on the other side, whereas I was very keen once I got through school to, to maybe go out to work. I had no real interest in going to college. Uh, myself and a pal of mine in school both applied to be apprentices with ESB. And my, when I came home to my mum, we got accepted. Uh, she went ballistic and said, listen, there's no way you're not going to college, blah, blah, blah. So both of them had a, a strong influence in different ways. My mum was very much about education, how important it was to develop. And my dad was very much about if you sign up to something you're committed to, you don't give up, you honour your commitment. So they were very strong influences on me at, at home. And then outside of that, I, I remember I, I played Gaelic all the way through and played with some decent teams. And I had a coach uh, through my kind of 14, 15, 16-year-old. Uh, he was going to Noel McGuinness. And he was just one of those coaches that knew you. So he knew the players to shout at. He knew the players to kind of say nothing to. He knew the players to give a few kind of words of encouragement to. And he always stuck in my head as just a guy. If you think about management, it is about knowing the skills and the attributes and getting people to perform at their best. And he always stuck in my head as someone that really influenced me over those formative years as to how you get the best out of people, how you understand different skills and talents. So there's probably a combination of those three that kind of stuck out in those formative years. Uh, and if I went back a bit further in my primary school in St. Fiacres, I had an amazing teacher, Maura Ryan. We were, um, again, there's a, there's a thread coming through here. I was in a, a bit of a disruptive class in primary school and um, the teachers were all given a, an option to get rid of three pupils because they were going to make an extra class. And I was one of the three thrown out of our class. And we got this new teacher, Maura Ryan, who's now the principal of the school, actually. And uh, I was in touch with her recently. Uh, but she was just amazing because she probably got the worst group of messers you could get at the age of, uh, I think we were about, well, we were 10 at that stage. And she just brought the best out of everyone. So she was another kind of strong influence in those early years. If I've heard this correctly, you've been on... Co-park during All Ireland Final Sunday more than some other GA players have via the Artane Boys Band. That was my claim to fame for years when you <laughs> anyone in Dublin, but now I don't think you can say that because they're winning every year. But uh, yeah, I would have been Co-Park every Sunday, even through the league matches, even back then the Camogie matches, leg matches. Every Sunday we would be there uh, from about twelve o'clock in the morning. You'd meet, you'd get the bus down to Croker, you'd hang around, go out at halftime, parade the senior match, halftime the senior match, and then you jump on the bus and go home. Do you think they'll do it again this year? Well, I think it's going to be much tighter. I think Kerry looked very good. Uh, Kerry forward line is phenomenal. And and I was surprised that Galway kind of seemed to put it to them. But I think the Dubs always have a little bit in reserve before they get to the uh, to the championship. But I think mm. Kerry looked decent. And the Ulster matches look very good. There's a couple of strong candidates in Ulster when you look at some of the contests there over the last couple of weeks. So hopefully it'll be a tighter championship. I think we're all crying out for that. And even the chance yeah. to get a few crowds in will be good. It certainly makes for a for, for, for a better experience for all. A couple of other things I know about you through research. GA coach, Arsenal fan, cyclist, yep. dog owner. You have a son with the same name as me. Yes. And I'm curious to know what's one thing you're into or curious about yourself that not a lot of people know about you. Wow. Ooh. The Arte Boys Band one is probably one that not a lot of people know about. In terms of other than that, actually, my, my eldest son, Rean, because it's funny, when we connected, I was going, it, it's not the most popular name, but it's a really yeah, yeah. nice name. I remember we picked it. My eldest son is uh, is autistic, and that's something that's probably become more more aware for people over the last probably 10, maybe plus years. 
But um, he's 19 now, and we've, we were in one of those groups where there was a lot more, well, there still is actually a lot of battles with Department of Health, Department of Education to get support. I think it's got a bit better for some people, but I think it is still a, a challenge. And that's something that I probably, not that I, I wouldn't say not a lot of people know about my son, but I do think it's important where you can to kind of understand people have a lot of things going on in their lives you don't really know about. And uh, particularly people who have challenges, whether it's kind of family members or personally with their own kind of struggles around mental health and things like that, there's always something going on that you don't really know. And I think we found for for my kids, particularly being around Reen and all the, the help and support they give to him has given us all a probably slightly different outlook on kind of things. And my two eldest girls in particular are just phenomenal. They just have a really great affinity with Reen and they're so supportive. And I think at that sense, we do a lot of stuff probably as a family and, and even the kids themselves just to raise funds or volunteer and, and get involved in that stuff. And I think that's but for Reen, we wouldn't have that perspective on life. We would just be getting on with things. But it does give you a different sense of appreciation for what other people have to deal with and just appreciation of family and, and the, the good things we all have. Absolutely. It's strange hearing my name in third person because it's not. <laughs> I'm not used to it, but it's nice to hear it pronounced correctly. You went to college in the end. Your mother obviously convinced you to go to college. You did marketing. Why did you choose yeah. marketing when chemist was your yeah. initial interest? Well, it's funny, we, we had a group of pals we grew up and one of them was a friend of mine, he was in Joey's with me, but from the same estate in Artain and another uh, friend of ours was in, in Ross Mini and we all talked about going to college and then we also said, look, if we're going to go, let's get out of Dublin and enjoy the whole experience and, and get away from home type of thing. We started doing the CAO sort of thing and we started looking around and we said, we looked at Dundalk, uh, RTC as it was then, Carlo RTC and Waterford RTC. We said, look, they're all an hour to an hour and a half up and down. So you could come home on weekends and everything like that. So we all applied for uh, courses in each of the colleges. And the only one the three of us got into was Carlo RTC. And I applied for applied science originally. And kind of we went down and we, uh, we got a house. We partnered with another two lads from Dublin. And we were 18 years of age, having our own house and going to college. And it was, nice. it was brilliant. But then within about oh, the first couple of weeks, I'd only done one science subject for, for me leaving. So the applied sciences, I was a bit at sea when some of the other things in biology and things were coming through. So I went to the registrar and asked if I could swap. And I swapped the business and uh, did kind of a diploma in marketing there and loved it and ended up staying there for another six years. I worked in the college. I got a kind of a work experience gig in the college, finished my degree in Portobello College while I was there and worked there for six, six odd years and then went to the States to, to do a, an MBA. Wow, that's impressive. After college, you went into some marketing roles, uh, marketing manager Europe at Verizon. I don't know if it was called that at the time. Yeah. I don't know if you were, either you were based in London or Dublin then uh, and then marketing manager for O2 Ireland. Any lessons learned or key takeaways from those roles focusing on the marketing title? Yeah, but there's a funny thing before that, because it's, it's, I had done my degree in marketing, sorry, my diploma, then did my work experience in the college, looking at a lot of different kind of uh, projects, really commercial marketing type of things. When I finished my degree, I said, look, oh, I'm going to look for another role. And I started applying for roles in Dublin and, and things like that. And generally the feedback was, you haven't got specific brand experience or marketing experience. And I was kind of going, hmm. So the chance to apply for the scholarship in the States came up and I said, look, I'm going to try this. And I got it and went and did it. And uh, 
while I was there, I worked in a media company uh, as part of an internship through the course. And uh, that was great. Gave me a lot more breadth of understanding in terms of broader marketing. Uh, came back to Ireland, just, you know, I was on a graduate visa, came back looking for work. And uh, a lot of the roles I applied for, I applied to all the media companies in Ireland and didn't even get a response. So I was kind of going, geez, this is going to be tricky. And I applied for WorldCom, which has now been acquired by Verizon. Went in as, I think the role then was a commercial analyst, but basically the job was to, the, the, uh, WorldCom was basically focused on targeting B2B companies and selling them telecom services. So broadband, phone, all, all that type of stuff. And I went in and it was very much hands-on, go and find all the companies around Dublin where the network goes past, go and put a database together, uh, do direct mail letters or telephone campaigns. So it was really hands-on and you were learning by the seat of your pants. And one of the things I learned in that job and when I went from there into O2, at that stage in my career, you, I was very focused on feeling you needed to know everything. So if I was sitting at a meeting where some of the network guys were there and they were using all the jargon, like VDSOL and all this stuff, you go, geez, I need to know that. And you go home and get a book or you kind of go, well, and you'd spend a lot of time feeling, geez, I need to know what everyone's talking about. And I think that's normal at that stage in your career. But then when you look back on it, you go, that's not that important. You really need to understand what your role is and how you're adding value rather than feeling you need to know every piece of the puzzle. Because And that was something, particularly those first two jobs, I probably kind of, thought too much about that and spent too much time on that kind of nitty gritty detail but in some ways it did give you personally a bit more confidence that when you were in a meeting and you were engaging with someone or you were asking someone to support you in a project you were able to relate to them a bit more in terms of their world their job so that was probably my early learnings in, in a marketing role was marketing in a lot of companies tends to sit on the periphery of things and in, in one you know some worlds they go well they're the shiny advertising uh, picture guys and they don't really understand business and the technology guys kind of don't think they're that kind of connected to the world the sales guys they've got all the hard work to do selling it and they think the marketing guys sit behind the scenes so there was a bit of through those two jobs by feeling so focused or kind of obsessed with kind of understanding how the business worked and being able to relate to the stakeholders that you were dependent on to to deliver a campaign or to promote and launch a product and all those type of things that go with that or put pricing models together that was probably for me the biggest formative thing in that sense. Whereas marketing in a lot of companies, marketing is seen as an output. You do an ad or you do a direct marketing campaign or you get a website up and running and so that. And then you don't link that back. When in reality, you should be going from the start of the process to the end of the process and closing that loop and constantly supporting the business. So it's you launch the campaign and the phones start ringing, but the guys in customer care don't know, you know, what they're supposed to be saying. They haven't been briefed. No, I think companies have gotten much, much better at this. But I remember in when we were in O2, all of the marketing team, we all used to spend a day a month down in Limerick in the call center. And you had to sit on the phone beside the guys that were taking wow. the calls. And very quickly, you understood that was a bad idea because it wasn't explained quickly or the camp were causing confusion by putting this out or the pricing was wrong. And getting closer to the customer and closer to the front line, I think, yeah, I know Tesco did this many years ago when they launched their kind of uh, Every Little Helps and all that type of stuff. Uh, understanding that and marketing people not being afraid to you know, go out in the van and see how a service is installed or how products are delivered or how retailers are reacting or how customers are engaging. Uh, it, I, I don't think there's any, any gap or any kind of a substitute for kind of that understanding of the whole business and where the customer interacts with the business and what role you're playing in improving that or, or, or growing that. 
That's an amazing story about O2 going down to Munster to listen to them on the phone. I wish more organisations did that. Uh, if you had the choice to add one subject to the leaving certificate that was mandatory, that's not currently on the curriculum, what would you add? Ooh, it's funny. I would think coding, some form of kind of coding and having a confidence around some of that more technical capability. Now, I think a lot of kids are brilliant at it now, but I think formalizing it, whether it's coding or the creative side of technology, again, I think that's where there's so much opportunity, I think, into the future. So, you know, how people like yourself are able to create audio content, how you can create video content, animation, coding, computer programming. I think whatever way you look at it, I know people, the purists will go, well, you need to be doing more arts or maybe go back to languages or whatever that, but I think in the world we're in, having a confidence and capability around technology and the creative aspects of technology, not, you know, when I say coding, it's, it's what coding can enable. So to some people that will always be brilliant at kind of analytics and databases and programming and, and input, but there's so much potential now from what technology can do enlightening people to that and then because i think coder dojo was a brilliant example we work with coder dojo and i've seen seven eight or nine nine year old kids being able to create mini robots or mini kind of demonstrations or cars and things like that just by doing a little bit of coding one hour a week over kind of a saturday morning and that kind of brings a whole new dimension to where they might go in their careers as opposed to because i think this obsession with leaving cert degree You've almost got the postgrad is almost a staging point now before you can go and look for a job. I think those days need to move on. I think more practical uh, demonstrations of people's abilities post school into apprenticeships. I know they're talking a lot about apprenticeships now. I think it's going to a bit too late, but a more practical approach to education. Not everybody is going to be enlightened or engaged or excited by that full kind of academic program. Lots of people will be, and that's fine for them. But for a lot of people who are more uh, in, in engaged or passionate about doing things and creating things and, and being hands-on and learning as they're doing, I think in a practical sense, I don't think we provide enough for that through kind of the second level and into the third level side of the, the education system. Maybe our parent-teacher meetings would have went better if, if we had subjects like that. You're just off the... Just on that, I think the interesting thing is through covid I know it's been very tricky in terms of the whole junior cert, leaving cert thing, but it'll be interesting to see in the next few years, does anybody do better or worse by the fact that they didn't have to sweat and stress over doing a leaving cert for mm-hmm. two years? Because it's interesting to see the amount of people that are opting for the dual model. And maybe that's the way forward. Let the students decide and, and hedge their bets. I want to get a, I want to go for grades in this model or in this, these subjects, and I want to go and do an exam in these subjects. But maybe let the, the kids decide rather than, I think, the torture of the leaving cert and that kind of almost regurgitating kind of what you've learned is not a way to learn. I think that the Scandinavian system is much, much better at teaching people creative ways of thinking, problem solving, even communication. Now I'd see it with uh, my kids and the girls we coach on, on the Gaelic teams. A lot of kids now struggle with proper communication and it's not their fault, but it's just they're in school. They're being told what to do. They're sitting on a, a social media app or a game or watching YouTube, whatever that, and those social skills are not being developed the same way they used to be. So that kind of creative thinking, social skills, things like that, probably are, 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 are in need of going to greater nurture or greater development. Probably important that they have extracurricular activities outside of school as well, so they're forced to mingle and get on with other kids as well. You're just off the back of your best quarter ever. If you see my eyes, thing is because I'm reading. It, one of the things was best ever performing news bulletin with 359,000 average viewers, 2.7 million individuals reached weekly. One challenge you spoke about 
looking to address is trust. You said there was an 11-point drop in trust in traditional media compared to the previous 12 months. I'm curious, from my perspective, how do you plan to address this? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a funny one. Edelman produced this trust barometer every year, and that's where I took those stats from. And it's a global tracker, and it attracts trust in business, politics, education, and media. And actually, I sorry, and I think I think in charities, NGOs as well. And media has kind of held its own for a number of years, but has started to decline. And a lot of that, I think, is based on I think things like uh, Donald Trump and four years of preaching fake news probably didn't help. <laughs> But equally, the dynamic of your social media players, your Facebooks and your Twitters and your, your YouTubes and the ability for them to manipulate situations and stories. We've seen very negative examples of that in the Philippines and, and in South America, where they've actually been able to create or facilitate situations that are anti-democratic and have led to a number of kind of uh, pretty uh, dire situations. So in terms of how we, we address it, I think there's two things that are critical. And it goes back to one of the earlier points we, we, we discussed. I think a better understanding of media literacy. So again, talking about things you should teach in school and it's not just school. I think it's for the whole population, but how we start to inform and educate people as to how they get a better understanding of the content they're consuming, where it comes from, how they can make their own decisions about the veracity and the quality and the integrity of that content is something that needs a lot of work. And it's not the challenges. If you're a media owner and you're trying to see, you see a lot of media owners going, oh, trust us, we're brilliant. Well, then you know, likely reaction is, hang on, they would say that, wouldn't they? And then you have to, the, 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 there's a growing, and I think it's taken a long time to get here. There's a growing sense of people having a little bit more anxiety and distrust around the data and the transactions they're having with their technology on, and, and their media partners. So whether it's your phone, or your iPad, or the, the social media platforms that you're engaging with, people are starting to go, well, how am I seeing ads now for toothpaste when I don't even use that, but yet you've just mentioned it, or I was just, and I think that transaction, I think people were always happy to make that trade, which is, look, I'll give Google all my data because I get a great service back. And I think, you know, and even legislation is starting to catch up. You've seen these, these new kind of moves, the audio, audiovisual service, media service directive, the copyright legislation. Australia, I think, has come back. They've seen what they've done with Facebook and forcing them to pay and contribute to traditional media. So I think that the first stage is how do you improve people's capability and, 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 lit, and, and uh, literacy around the media they're consuming and, and, and validating that? And the second part is, I think, making people accountable. Um, I think the big challenge for traditional media versus new media, if a radio station or a TV station says something that's false or wrong or pretends to be something it's not, they're fully accountable for that and they will potentially pay big fines or go to court or end up potentially in jail. If somebody on a social media platform does it, they put their hands up and say, look, well, we're just a platform. We're not a publisher. I've always argued for years and years that in my mind, they are publishers. They do and should be responsible for what they put out on their platforms and making this decision to say, well, it's nothing to do with us when they're running away with millions and millions of euro every month uh, is not the right answer. And I think government is trying to catch up on that. But I think it's a a challenge for society generally. Media has played a strong role in providing information, but equally holding institutions to account. And if there is a sense of mistrust or distrust or uh, a lack of credibility or belief in those institutions, well, then where do you get that from and how do you provide some sort of a stable uh, platform for people to stay informed and to inform their decisions and to participate in, in society? 
We're coming near the end. I've only got a couple more questions for you. One is, you've achieved a lot in your career to date. I could list the companies, but you already know them. What continues to drive you, though? It's funny, as I've gone on, there's three things that, that you know, I've learned as I've gone on in my career. The first thing, the test is, I always want to make sure I'm enjoying what I'm doing. So you know, these are the things when you, you sit back at the end of the year, you kind of, I go through this checklist. Uh, the second thing is, am I making a difference? So is the company performing or growing or doing better because, yeah. because of something I'm doing? And, and the third piece is, always want to leave something better than I found it. So they're the three uh, pillars and, the, and and within them there's a learning piece because I've been very fortunate to move around different sectors and a lot of people stay in a sector and do really well in that sector I enjoy that kind of challenge of learning growing through other people I mean I think I'm a huge uh, fan of kind of enabling and empowering people to do the job rather than kind of being very hierarchical and directional within the company I think the company succeeds because of all the people in it not because of one person at the top I mean that's I think that's uh, very old thinking and it's not in any way kind of valid in my mind so uh, for me the test is yeah am I making a difference uh, in a positive sense am I learning and growing and uh, will I leave the place better than I found it your loved ones three kids your wife animals they're all safe but your house is burning down and you can only save one item what one item would that be my bike good answer you like the cyclists. I saw that you've been on a couple of cool coastal cycles. Uh, not that I stalked you, just to get information for the podcast. No, it's, um, it's funny. I, I, um, I would have, when I went to the States, actually, I got very friendly again. And sport, yeah, sports is a current theme, and you mentioned it there. And I think being involved in something outside of school or work is very important. For me, that's always been sports for other people's different things. But that's always mm-hmm. enabled me when I've gone abroad or you know left home to go to Carlo to connect and meet people. But when I was in the States, I got into mountain biking a lot and uh, I brought my bike home. And for 10 years, I never went near it. It was in my mother-in-law's uh, house. I met a fella, uh, he came into the house and he was working in town. He said, oh, I cycle in to work every day. And we were living out in, in Malahide. I was going, geez, I've never been on a bike. In it. And then I bought a bike. And this is 10 years ago. And it was the best thing I ever did. Now, the other thing was I had been, I had kind of gone back to play over 25 soccer and uh did me within a month and had to get the cartilage done. And the doctor said, look, you're not playing football again, either cycle or swimming. So that kind of helped as well. But I really just got the bug. It just clears your head. You get, get the bike in the morning, put some music on or listen to the radio. And uh, it's 40 minutes of activity. You get your exercise done, you clear your head. And then that got into some other things, going off and doing some charity cycles and things like that. And it's uh, for me, it's the thing that works and, and I love it. And it clears my head and gives me kind of a, my, my energy really. I'd like you to, final question, I'd like you to imagine it's the year 2030, as if we're now in 2030 talking to one another, and you're looking back on the past decade, you can answer this personally or professionally, but what would you like to be looking back on? Oh, probably two answers to that. At a, at a personal level, I'd like all my kids to be happy, and that's for them to decide, not for me, because I mean, you know, but for me, it, w- it won't be defined by career you know they may decide that but for me it would be more uh, what's their passion and and, and and are they kind of happy in whatever that is and then on a professional kind of sense I think it would, I, I would it would be nice to look back and see people that I've worked with do really well I you know I get an awful lot of energy from seeing people grow and do well and, and progress so probably both of those things would be the things I'd look back on. Paul Farrell I've enjoyed spending the last 30-35 minutes getting to know you a little more and uh, I hope both of them do come true and wish you nothing but the best going forward. Brilliant, Ryan. Thank you so much.
If your metro don't trust you, I'm gonna shoot you. Beautiful morning, you're the sun of my morning, baby. 